All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the first class of 2023. Today, we will be learning about ultra-leftism, what it is and who are the ultra-leftists, different types of ultra-leftism and ultra-leftists, Marxist-Leninist critiques of them, and we'll be reading from Lenin's left-wing communism and infantile disorder. This is an important issue, ultra-leftism. It's part of the policy of a good Bolshevik not to become fall on one side or to fall on the right or the left side. On the right side, we all know we have social democracy, we have reformism, we have perestroika, or the new left is, is on the other side, but we have perestroika, we have social democracy, reformism, revisionism. Uh, on the other side, we have the ultra-left, which includes the new left, which includes Trotskyism, Maoism, especially anarchism. Is, they're just as dangerous as falling on the side of the right. I hope we get to read OU's Gus Hall's paper that he wrote discussing what ultra-leftism is. Thank you. All right. On the topic of what ultra-leftism is. Ultra-leftism is a term coined by Marxist-Leninists to describe various left-wing communist ideologies, both allegedly communist and not, that ascribe to more left positions and are too extreme in their actions. Ultra-leftism's primary policy is that of sectarianism. The incorrect policy or correct policy incorrectly applied which tends to isolate the communists from the masses, leaving them to a few in number, a sect from Marxist glossary. Also known as left-wing communism, as in the title of Lenin's work on the subject, Left-Wing Communism, an Infantile Disorder, published in June of 1920. Ultra-leftism is a left-wing deviation from Leninism. And as you can see the quote below, from the Marxist Glossary by L. Harry Gold, describes left-wing communism as an overestimation of the power of the capitalists, i.e. an absence of faith in the capacity of the workers for successful struggle against capitalism, resulting in failure to organize and lead the struggle, and hence adventurism and the superman leaps in the sphere of policy. Examples of ultra-leftist ideologies include Anarchism and their variations, such as anarcho-communism, that of Kropotkin, anarcho-syndicalism, which is practiced by the IWW, Maoism, Marxism-Leninism, Maoism, Gonzalo thought, that of the Revolutionary Communist Party, Trotskyism and New Leftism, for example, Students for a Democratic Society falls under that category of New Left ideology. History of ultra-leftism, origins, 1850s to 1920s. The first ultra-leftist ideology was anarchism, which was not Marxist, naturally opposed to Marxism, and was built on individualism, anti-statism, spontaneity, and idealism. Modern anarchism first came to being in the mid-1800s with the ideas of philosophical anarchism, individualism, and mutualism merging. Marx gave these ideas thorough critiques in his time. 
The term ultra-leftist originated in the 1920s Dutch and German workers' movement describing anti-Bolshevik forces that were also affiliated with anarchists. Ultra-leftism was born of left-wing opposition in the communist parties in the 1910s and 20s, combined with the pre-existing anarchist movements and Mikhail Bakunin, who was the first to start the idea of violent insurrectionary movement or individual terrorism, whereas previously Proudhon was peaceful and actually proposed a mutualist society that would supplant capitalism, which he coined, gave the term anarchy. History of ultra-leftism, and this is Trotsky and the left opposition. In 1923, Leon Trotsky formed the left opposition of the Russian Communist Party, Bolshevik. It was partially in opposition to socialism in one country and in support of permanent revolution, the idea of worldwide revolution all at once, as well as in addition to opposition to the Brest-Litovsk Peace Treaty. There was also a right opposition led by Nikolai Bukharin, which was a right-wing deviation. The left and right oppositions both united to form the United Opposition in 1926, and both opposed the Stalin leadership and economic policy until the United Opposition was expelled at the 15th Party Congress in 1927. After Trotsky was expelled, Bukharin was later expelled in 1929. A Trotskyist current affected the world communist movement causing splits in parties all around the world and endangering anti-Sovietism in the communist movement. The international left opposition was formed by Trotsky in 1930 and later became known as the Fourth International, rejecting the Bolshevik-led Third International. Maoism came about as a result of Mao's deviations from Marxism-Leninism, mostly post-1949, Mao rejected the term Maoism. The term was used mostly after his death. Maoism has prevailed as an ultra-leftist current in the world, especially since Mao's death in the 1970s. Some of the left deviations of Maoism and Marxism-Leninism are the theory of the free world, which, like the war in this case, that the Soviet Union and the United States constituted the first world, that the Soviet Union was therefore social and imperialist, which was also shared by the Communist Party of Albania or the Labour Party of Albania and essentially Verhoja as well, which is essentially a non-Marxist theory. Peasantry as a revolutionary vanguard, the idea rather than the urban proletariat, the peasantry is a revolutionary vanguard, as Marxist Leninists have always upheld that the peasantry is the proletariat's greatest ally, yet the proletariat is to the main emphasis on carrying out a successful revolution. That new democracy, the idea that every colonial country would have its own unique path to socialism and socialism in China would be different than that of the Soviet Union. Namely, this would actually occur under the form of Deng Xiaoping's socialism and Chinese characteristics, and would essentially promote an exceptionalist line that the laws of how socialism is to be constructed is subjective and not applicable to the worldwide development. China itself took a capitalist right-wing turn after Mao's death, but many Mao's parties and insurgency groups exist around the world today as a result of Mao's deviations. My question is, why can't 
the peasantry, as in the case of China, be the revolutionary vanguard? Yeah, I could, I could answer that. That's a very good question, extremely good question. It's not a matter of why they can't. It's a matter of Marxism. Marx spent many years discussing this subject. And he said clearly that the proletariat, which is that section of the working class that is in the factories, that's what he calls the proletariat, that the proletariat are the only class that can lead a revolution because of their closeness to the means of production. That's not anybody else but Marx saying it. What is the means of production? The means of production are the factories, natural resources combined with factories are part of the means of production. And that only the working class and the proletarian in particular, if they went on strike, would stop the society. If the farmers or the peasants went on strike, society would not stop. That was Marx's analysis. So we have to ask our question, is Marx correct or is Marx incorrect? If we say Marx is incorrect, then we have to understand what we're saying, that the very foundation of Marxism is, is put in question. So I think that's the best way to answer that question. Thank you. Okay, uh, I just to build on Comrade Angelo, right? The peasantry in China in particular, it was a war for national liberation first, which then became a war for revolution. And in that war, China was first was fought a guerrilla war, which was reliant on the peasantry. So their ideology was created based on their material conditions, which and, and the way that they won. Um, and the, the reason why Maoism first developed and the whole line about social imperialism is unfortunately because of China's history as a colonial state of essentially every single major European power and the Japanese and the Americans, right? So they're very wary of basically being subservient in their view to any other country. They're extremely anti. They just they wanted to be the world power because they were afraid that if they gave up control, that they would just become another colony. Um, but these groups, Maoists, Trotskyists, even anarchists can be educated and converted. I was an anarchist at one point, right? Um, and in fact, I was a mutualist. And here is the book that actually convinced me to not be an anarchist. It's called Mutualist Methods, Two Essays on Practical Anarchy, which essentially just said, I give you an egg and you give me a computer and no one just has any debt ever. And we'll just always do that naturally, right? But all these people are educated, but you have to think about what is their ideology what do they believe? What is their main criticism of Marxism and Leninism? And how can we turn that on them, right? Because all of them are different and all of them want different things and all of them are viewed the world through different lenses. And that's how we should you know, reach out to them through different wit methods. That's all. Thank you. It's very important also to realize how both the ultra left and the ultra right, even though they may pretend to have different positions on certain questions, um, ultimately, they share one thing in common. They oppose the center, the center position of Marxism-Leninism. Um, this happened in the Soviet Union um, with the left and right opposition. Both the ultra-left and the ultra-right said the Soviet Union can't have socialism. 
The ultra right set, which was Bukharin's faction, said it was because the Soviet Union was too poor and that it needed to continue the new economic policy indefinitely. Um, the ultra left, which was Trotsky, said that the USSR needed to, you know, enter war communism again and try and spread the revolution westward, even though the Soviet Union was not prepared nor industrialized and, you know, the Soviet Union was not in a place to engage in that type of policy, nor would it have been productive towards spreading socialism. In China, the ultra-right of the Chinese party, they basically kept to the cities and they were thus eliminated by the, you know, the Chinese nationalists, unfortunately. The ultra-left in China, they opposed the Chinese United Front when the Japanese invaded China, and they actually fought against the Eighth Right Army and the Chinese Communists during the Chinese Civil War. Ho Chi Minh himself called the Chinese Trotskyist Japanese agents. And uh, in terms of politics throughout um, this period of the 1930s and 40s, Trotskyism and Trotskyist politics very much complemented the foreign policy of the, the fascists, which was destruction of the Soviet Union, even though they were ideologically different. Yes, essentially, as Lenin put it in his letter to Amanda and Essa Armanda, poses about Trotsky, poses as a left, helps the right as much as they can. But anyway. Okay. Yes, I just wanted to know, um, what is anarcho-cynicalism and anarcho-communism? Yeah, I could answer that quicker, please. They are forms of anarchy. That's all they are. They were created along the way. They were never part of our lexicon, never part of our terminology. They were created along the way by their uh, people who wanted to be a little bit of anarchist, a little bit of communist, a little bit of trade unionist. And um, they formed these terms, anarcho-syndicalism, anarcho-communism, but they don't exist in real life. That's my experience. Thank you. I would like to actually answer that by stating that anarcho-syndicalism is a tendency, especially among the IWW and during the earlier class struggle periods in the United States, where essentially it is a group of trade unions struggling against the capitalists, but essentially the anarcho-syndicalists do not believe in participating in the political field, electoral politics, what have you. Anarcho-communism is essentially just continuing on from Kunin in terms of supporting at least the trade union movement versus Pradhan, who did not, and supporting isolated acts of terrorism. And essentially just their main contradiction is essentially with the state. And after that, the revolution, which would be a one and done act, they would just have a communist society free from classes. Yeah, real quick, uh, is left, ultra-leftism, is it have the veneer of authoritarian like right-wing does, or is there a distinct policy distinction between authoritarian ultra-leftism and just right-wing authoritarianism, if that makes sense? Thank you. There is an infatuation. Well, that isn't entirely true. In the ultra-left, the anarchists, especially among the those that oppose authority, but yeah, there's essentially this hyper means of aggression, especially in the field of adventurism, of absolutely opposing, basically forcing one's views down the throats of working people, especially 
ultra leftists tend to view their work as though they were missionaries in that regards. But definitely there's an authoritarian tendency. I mean, authority exists everywhere, especially in nature. So, but anyway. Yeah. So earlier you had mentioned about Andre Hoxha. And I guess my question um, is that, is that considered a form of ultra leftism? I guess the tendency, because from what I understand, he, uh, Albania was allied with the Soviet Union and then they cut off relations during the Khrushchev period and then they were allied with China and, and Mao's China. And then after <clears throat> the death of Mao and during the, the Deng period, uh, he, they did the same thing, which kind of left them in a position where they cut off, from what I understand, everybody in the world or in the international communist movement at the time. Yeah, I'd like to answer that, Angelo from New York. Yes, go ahead. Enver Hoxha was part of the ultra-left formation. His position was the Soviet Union. He created this term. It never existed. The Soviet Union was social imperialist. That was the Enver Hoxha. And he shared that with Mao Zedong. When Mao died, the Chinese party changed their position. And therefore, he broke the relationship with the Chinese party. But Enver Hoxha, like many others, served a purpose in the war against German occupation in Europe, the fascist occupation. He was a positive element. He led partisan movement in Albania. Then he led a different position later on. I consider it, many of us do, a negative position. So dialectically is the word we use. People serve different positions at different times in their life. So yes, to answer your question, it was definitely ultra-left. Thank you. Yes. All right. On to the presentation again. All righty. Uh, the history of ultra-leftism. Uh, this part is on new leftism. So Herbert Marcuse is considered the father of the new left. He attended the Institute of Social Research, what would later become the Frankfurt School, and was a leading proponent of critical theory. So when you hear about critical theory uh, in a lot of these new left circles, uh, that, that's where it came from. Critical theory is a school of thought that deviates from Marxist theory by combining Marxian analysis with other forms of sociological or philosophical traditions. So basically, they're taking a lot of, uh, there was like the Eros and another Greek word that they were focusing on when they were uh, creating critical theory. And so basically it they were trying to uh, combine Marxist theory with stuff that wasn't uh, very Marxist. And although initially modernist, it eventually gave rise to the postmodernist thought. Uh, the new left was essentially founded on critical theory and a rejection of the class struggle and focus on the labor movement to instead focused solely on the social issues of race, gender, sexuality, etc. Maoism and anarchism also played a role in new left movements. And so that's what you see a lot uh, nowadays in, in, in movements like Black Lives Matter or, uh, or a couple of the LGBT plus movements out there is they're focus so, focusing solely on the social issues and they just leave uh, the class struggle behind. And examples of new left organizations include Students for a Democratic Society, which has the logo over on the right there, 
uh, the Black Panther Party, Young Patriots, Young Lords, Brown Berets, American Indian Movement, the Weathermen, the Hippie Movement, Subversive Action, Commune One, the Situationalists International, the Workers' Party of Brazil, the United Red Army, Japanese Red Army, and even to some extent, modern movements such as BLM. And before we go on, I just want to let people know that doesn't necessarily mean that these organizations are all bad. That would be undialectical. That would be uh, discarding the wheat with the shaft. Uh, obviously, there's positive things that uh, these different organizations did, and they played their own role uh, in history. And there were times where they were good. There were times where they were not so good. So let's just remember that uh, as we go along here. And then ultra leftism in the current day. The longstanding effects of the new left, McCarthyism, COINTELPRO, that's the counterintelligence program of the uh, intelligence agencies in the United States, the Sino-Soviet split and the counter-revolution in the USSR, as well as the actions of right deviationists in the world communist movement like Gorbachev, have resulted in a prevalence of ultra-leftism and much of the Western left. In the United States, the most widespread form of ultra-leftism today is anarchism, which shows itself in the form of spontaneous attacks on police, right-wing forces, and yes, even communists. We've seen it. Uh, we've seen it, uh, them attack us specifically. Uh, individualism and unbridled sectarianism, decentralization and spontaneous riots as seen in the 2020 uprisings against police brutality. And Antifa is another example of rising anarchist activity under a bastardized version of the original communist anti-fasciste action, which uh, Antifa clashes with fascists in the streets of American cities, but does nothing to stop the, the rise of fascism politically. Maoism in the United States today is not as strong as anarchism or new leftism, but it can be seen in militant Maoist groups, such as the Red Guards, who follow the thought of Chairman Gonzalo from Peru, and who have physically attacked socialist groups in the last few years, such as the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Austin, Texas. Uh, and it's worth noting there that the Austin, Texas chapter dissolved shortly after that. Uh, new left, and that's the Austin, Texas chapter of the Red Guards, not PSL. Uh, new leftism has had an astounding influence on modern social justice groups like Black Lives Matter, Land Back, and some LGBT plus groups. Critical race theory and new left feminism have been pushed much, pushed much as of recent, both products of critical theory. On the side there, on that slide, you could see a riot where there was a graffiti that said, no orgs, no actions. Uh, and the other one was a picture of the Red Guards holding up their uh, banner uh, somewhere in the United States. And they had a picture of uh, Gonzalo from Peru as well. So we'll go into our next discussion period and a few questions I want us to think about and maybe pose uh, when we're talking here is, have you seen an example of ultra leftism in the current day? Uh, how might we work with the different denominations of ultra leftists and when should we not? So we'll go ahead and go to the floor here. Okay, just wanted to say a few things. I'll try to get through really quick. Uh, the first one is the big emphasis that we should all take on ultra leftism is their rejection of dialectical and historical materialism. You know, they've come to their conclusions on different types of analysis, but they have outright rejected Marxist analysis for the most part. The second thing is kind of a personal example of 
some of the groups that we've talked about. Uh, we were attacked by anarchists in um, Oakland, California, because we were uh, selling Leninist literature. They specifically hated that uh, we had Lenin books. They didn't care much about that we had Marx, but Lenin was the 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 line in the sand, you know. So things got physical, you know, it happened. Um, but another thing interesting is Red Guards. I used to go to uh, some of their like study sessions and all of this, but basically what it boils down to was let's see how we can attack PSL and all these other groups like BSA, like physically attack them. That was what they were planning, which to me as a young 15 and 16 year old, even then I realized this is, you know, federal agent behavior. Uh, they didn't last more than a year, but here's the kicker. They used to organize their events in La Casa Roja in Los Angeles, which is owned by the CPUSA. To, just to show how morally and or not morally, uh, how ideologically bankrupt the CPUSA is in Southern nice. California. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I did not know that. So that is very interesting to note. Yeah, I had a question on the first section. So with Maoist thought, they see the peasants as a revolutionary force. My question is really is two questions. One is uh, to what extent did a industrial proletariat exist in China during the time of the revolution? And what do Maoists uh, view as the role of the industrial proletariat if they are not the primary revolutionary force? All right. Thank you, comrade. I want to briefly answer as much as I can uh, on this. Uh, when I was studying this, uh, Mao in his early years had put an emphasis on uh, the urban proletariat as well as the peasantry. And I do believe that there was somewhat of a significant urban proletariat in China. Uh, but as his life went on, and especially as he got towards the end of his life, uh, he promoted more and more of the thought of the peasantry uh, was the uh, revolutionary vanguard. And uh, Maoists, after his death, have really just ran with that and made that their, their thing. But Mao didn't always necessarily reject the urban proletariat. There was a time where he was right on that. Um, if anybody wants to give a better answer, I'll allow them to have the floor. Can I speak? Go ahead, Comrade Angelo. Okay. In 1920s, there was an uprising, a strike in Shanghai, China, led by the Communist Party. The Kuomintang people, the capitalists, killed that strike in blood. It was defeated. The same thing happened in Russia in 1905. There was an uprising against the Tsar. It failed, it was drowned in blood. The difference between Russia and China, as far as the party is concerned. In Russia, they said, we failed it, we're gonna try it again. And they tried it again. The workers led it and they tried it in 1917. March, I believe it was March, and they succeeded. In China, they decided that we failed in 1920s, so we're not going to depend on the working class anymore. We're now going to depend on an uprising led by the peasants. So they went into the mountains where there were no workers and just peasantry, and they helped build a revolution there. That was the difference. That's why the Chinese flag, if you noticed, has stars on it. One of those stars is for the Comprador capitalist. 
90 seconds. All right. And the capital capitalists were capitalists that were in China that were Chinese, as opposed to the capitalists that were foreign from the colonialists. So they opposed the colonial capitalists, but they supported the comprador capitalists. And they were on one of the flags, one of the stars. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. Yeah, comrade Angela covered most of what I was going to say. Um, the only thing I would add is just that most of the, rev during the revolution, uh, the communist party did not have access to the proletariats who were the, especially those in the urban centers. Um, and he also partially did not trust them because oftentimes they were from the Kuomintang and he considered them part of the sort of uh, the upper class of the working class, essentially. And he said that he didn't trust them, essentially. Um, and that, so therefore, the peasantry are the ones who are truly oppressed. Um, but Comrade Angelo covered essentially everything else that I was going to say. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Comrade. Uh, yeah, um, I was going to make a couple of comments on uh, the syndicalists and Trotskyists specifically, anarcho-syndicalists, um, to do with Minneapolis and the history here. Um, in the 1930s, there was a big uh, general strike where the Teamsters, who were Trotskyist-led at the time, took over the city of Minneapolis. Um, and connecting that with the international anti-fascist thing, if you think about it, there's large sections within uh, the Teamsters who were very, especially then, very, very key uh, like industry to uh, be organized in. But they're going with the mentality that, that the main enemy is Stalin, basically. So then you got the Spanish Civil War going on, and that I was going to say railroad, but that'd be kind of a bad pun. Um, like uh, fractures the whole tr uh, trade union movement here. Um, just you can see where the Trotskyists led to. I think some of them became neocons. Um, and then as far as the anarcho-syndicalists go, in Minneapolis, um, there was anti-racist action that came about in the '80s. Uh, which I do like respect on the level of uh, they defeated the not drove Nazis out of Minneapolis, but uh, now they're actively passionately supporting the uh, regime in Kiev. Um, so it's like uh, got it backwards. And uh, but yeah, that's all I just want to say. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, I want to say real quick on that. And I don't want to, I don't want us to uh, get off topic and for this to cause a big old conversation of its own. But one thing I have noticed in the ultra left is you know, while they make a lot of talk about anti-fascism and sometimes they clash with fascists and drive them out of a town. Yeah, internationally, uh, time and time again, they've supported fascism. Uh, there's a good book that uh, New Outlook Publishers had put out at some point called Trotskyism and Service of Franco. So they did it in Spain. Uh, the anarchists did it in Spain as well. Uh, the, I believe the anarchists did it in Ukraine. And I know anarchists today that are passionately supporting uh, Ukraine against Russia. Either that or they just say, uh, fight all the states involved because we're anti-statist, which of course is so idealist. It's it's just, it, it's very frustrating and it's very dangerous. Uh, so thank you, comrade. Uh, we'll take about uh, two or three more hands before we hop back to the presentation. Yeah, I just wanted to talk on critical theory for a second. Uh, I know it was mentioned in this last slide. Uh, so the, the, essentially, this is a, a, a postmodern deviation, right? So uh, modernity is uh, colloquially defined by industrial capitalism. Uh, we're, we're faced with the calamity of uh, producing and upkeeping our productive core as a world, I'm just saying, right? So out of this modernity, we have postmodernity in successfully industrialized worlds, right? 
this is a deviation uh, that is ideologically driven, not materially driven, right? This is what critical theory says in, in, its, in its most basic form, is that instead of a dance between the idealist world and the material world, where the material world is more dominant in this exchange of forming and shaping each other, uh, that ideology is the more predominant uh, uh, force in the exchange between idealism and the material world. That's all that I wanted to say. Thank you, comrade. Uh, really quickly, I want to go ahead and uh, say something that I was sent to me in the chat. What does PSL believe? Also, I wonder if, as Zinoviev admitted, Trotskyism is a form of fascism. If I remember correctly, Bittleman and Vizinski also said so. Uh, so to respond to the second part of that, um, I don't know if it's necessarily dialectical to say that Trotskyism is a form of fascism, but one thing that we can say for sure is that Trotskyism has time and time again worked alongside fascists uh, in their anti-Soviet and anti-communist uh, pursuits. Uh, so at the very least, uh, Trotskyism has helped fascism on more than one occasion. And when it comes to what does PSL believe, um, I, I know that PSL is a split from Workers World Party, which was a split from the sorry split from the Socialist Workers Party, and I'm pretty sure that that is a Trotskyist uh, set of groups. There, PSL comes out of the Marxist tradition. Mar Sam Marcy, who was a communist during the 1930s, he was in the Communist Party, but he left it, um, and he got became disillusioned when Hitler came to power. Um, he was in the Socialist Workers Party, but he was alienated from the Socialist Workers Party because of their anti-Soviet and anti-communism. So he founded the Workers World Party in the early 1950s. It was a pro-Soviet party, but it did reference Trotsky, and but internationally had very good positions. It was pro-Libya, pro-Eastern Bloc, pro-People's Korea. Um, and PSO comes out of that tradition where they are good on a lot of international positions. But domestically, they do, they are not in favor of the broad masses. They see themselves as, let's build the movement, man. Let's build these activist organizations. Let's, you know, let's build up a big protest, which is almost all that PSL does, especially in major urban centers, which is they build up the rallies, they build up the protests, they kind of control the protest movement. But that isn't the same as being a party of a new type. So PSL is not a party of a new type. Um, I've heard it best described as kind of an activist group who some, they sometimes they have good international positions, but they're not good on Russia, Ukraine. Um, I attended, actually attended, I was curious, I attended a class held by PSL in uh, Boston at one of their, um, at one of their bookstores. And all they talked about was NATO expansion. They didn't talk about how Kiev, the Kiev regime and the fascism in Ukraine seconds. and all that stuff. Thank you, comrade. Hi, yeah, I just had a comment and then a question. So I also kind of just wanted to highlight the, the role of the Congress for Cultural Freedom in promoting all of these uh, left-wing deviations. I think it's really important. And then the question would be, is there a particular class element to all of these? Because to me, they always seem to come out of uh, sort of a petite bourgeois mindset. Thank you. Yes, thank you, comrade. Uh, there's a good pamphlet that I wasn't able to put in this presentation, but that I remember Comrade General Secretary telling me to bring up, and this made me think about it, Petty Bourgeois Radicalism by Gus Hall. 
a lot of these people do come out of the petty bourgeois. And so they're not connected to the working class. They're not connected to our class interests. Um, they're basically uh, doing this uh, so, sort of for their own interests. And I, I would say sort of for bragging rights too, but maybe somebody can give a better answer than yeah, myself. This is Angelo. I've been through the gamut of all these groups, all of them, at different times, at different periods. The issue of the intellectuals is, has always been a mainstay in the Trotskyite movement and in the Maoist movement. They come from the intelligentsia. They normally don't come from the working class, the organized working class. They don't come from the labor movement, never. They may be workers themselves, but they don't identify as trade unionists. They come from basically the universities, the sons and the daughters of shopkeepers, teachers, doctors, lawyers. That's where they tend to come from. I noticed this and I experienced it when I was in SDS in college. The people that led SDS, one of them was the granddaughter of a big company called the Dukes, D-U-K-E-S in New Jersey. The Duke family owned tobacco farms in New Jersey. And their granddaughter was one of the leaders of SDS. And I was impressionable when she came to my college in Staten Island and spoke. So yes, that's, they tend to by and large come from the middle class, which we call the petty bourgeois. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. All right, let's go ahead and return to the presentation. So let's go to the next slide. We're looking at left-wing communism and infantile disorder. Uh, this is available on New Outlook Publishers, by the way. Um, we'll put the link in the chat on the next discussion section. So left-wing communism and infantile disorder was published in June of 1920 and was published in Russian, German, English, and French. It was distributed to each delegate of the Second World Congress of the Communist International. In this text, Lenin talks of the international significance of the Bolshevik Revolution, criticizes the Second International for not seeing it, and points out the errors of the, of the Bolshevik Revolution and how it succeeded, and then critiques the left elements of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and the German Communist Party as well. This is from Chapter 4, the struggle against what enemies within the working class movement did the Bolsheviks become strong and steeled. So they're, they're, this is talking about what enemies were within our movement that we had to struggle against. First and foremost, the struggle against opportunism, which in 1914 definitely developed into social chauvinism and definitely sided with the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. Naturally, this was Bolshevism's principal enemy within the working class movement. It still remains the principal enemy on an international scale. The Bolsheviks have been devoting the greatest attention to this enemy. The aspect of Bolshevik activities is now fairly well known abroad too. It was, however, different with Bolshevism's other enemy within the working class movement. Little is known in other countries 
of the fact that Bolshevism took shape, developed, and became steeled in the long years of struggle against petty bourgeois revolutionism. We just mentioned petty bourgeois radicalism, which smacks of anarchism or borrows something from the latter and in all essential matters does not measure up to the conditions and requirements of a consistently proletarian class struggle. Marxist theory has established and the experience of all European revolutions and revolutionary movements has fully confirmed that the pretty proprietor, the small master, a social type existing on a very extensive and even mass scale in many European countries, who under capitalism always suffers oppression and very frequently a most acute and rapid deterioration in his conditions of life and even ruin easily goes to revolutionary extremes and is incapable of perseverance, organization, discipline, and steadfastness. A petty bourgeois driven to frenzy by the horrors of capitalism is a social phenomenon which, like anarchism, is characteristic of all capitalist countries. The instability of such revolutionism, its barrenness, and its tendency to turn rapidly into submission, apathy, phantasms, and even a frenzied infatuation with one bourgeois fad or another. All of this is common knowledge. However, a theoretical or abstract recognition of these truths does not at all rid revolutionary parties of old errors, which always crop up at un unexpected occasions and somewhat new forms in a hitherto unfamiliar garb or surroundings and an unusual or more or less unusual situation. Anarchism was not infrequently a kind of penalty for the opportunist sins of the working class movement. The two monstrosities complemented each other. And if in Russia, despite the more petty bourgeois composition of her population, as compared with the other European countries, anarchism's influence was negligible during the two revolutions of 1905 and 1917, and the preparations for them this should no doubt stand partly to the credit of Bolshevism, which has always waged a most ruthless and uncompromising struggle against opportunism. I say partly since of still greater importance and weakening anarchism's influence in Russia was the circumstance that in the past, the 70s of the 19th century, so that's the 1870s, it was able to develop inordinately and to reveal its absolute erroneousness its unfitness to serve the revolutionary class as a guiding theory. When it came into being in 1903, Bolshevism took over the tradition of a ruthless struggle against petty bourgeois, semi-anarchist or dilettante anarchist, revolutionism, a tradition which had always existed in revolutionary social democracy and had become particularly strong in our country during the years of 1900 to 1903 when foundations for a mass party of the revolutionary proletariat were being laid in Russia. Bolshevism took over and carried on the struggle against a party which, more than any other, expressed the tendencies of petty bourgeois revolutionism, namely the Socialist Revolutionary Party, which waged that struggle on three main issues. First, that party, which rejected Marxism, stubbornly refused or it might be more correct to say was unable to understand the need for a strictly objective appraisal of the class forces and their alignment. 
before taking any political action. It was, of course, only on grounds of expediency that we rejected individual terrorism, whereas people who were capable of condemning on principle the terror of the great French Revolution, or in general, the terror employed by a victorious revolutionary party, which is besieged by the bourgeoisie of the whole world, were ridiculed and laughed to scorn by Plekhanov in 1900 to 1903, when he was a Marxist and a revolutionary. Third, the socialist revolutionaries thought it very left to sneer at the comparatively insignificant opportunist sins of the German Social Democratic Party, while they themselves imitated the extreme opportunists of that party. For example, on the agrarian question, or on the question of the dictatorship of the proletariat. History, incidentally, has now confirmed on a vast and worldwide scale the opinion we have always advocated, namely that German revolutionary social democracy, note that as far back as 1900-03, Plekhanov demanded Bernstein's expulsion from the party, and in 1913, the Bolsheviks, always continuing this tradition, expose legions' baseness, vileness, and treachery, came closest to being the party the revolutionary proletariat needs in order to achieve victory. Today, in 1920, when this was written, after all the ignominious failures and crises of the war period in the early post-war years, it can be plainly seen that of all the Western parties, the German revolutionary social democrats produced the finest leaders and recovered and gained new strength more rapidly than the others did. This may be seen in instances of both the Spartacists and the left. Proletarian wing of Independent Social Democratic Party of Germany, which is waging an incessant struggle against the opportunism and the spinelessness of the Kautskys, Hilferdings, Ledebors, and Crispians. If we now cast a glance to take in a complete historical period, namely from the Paris Commune to the first socialist Soviet Republic, we shall find that Marxism's attitude to anarchism in general stands out most definitely and unmistakably. In the final analysis, Marxism proved to be correct. And although the anarchists rightly pointed to the opportunist views on the state prevalent among most of the socialist parties, it must be said, first, that this opportunism was connected with the distortion and even the deliberate suppression of Marx's views on the state. In my book, The State and Revolution, I pointed out that for 36 years, from 1875 to 1911, Bebel withheld a letter by Engels, which very clearly, vividly, bluntly, and definitively exposed the opportunism of the current social democratic views on the state. Second, that the rectification of these opportunist views and the recognition of Soviet power and its superiority to bourgeois parliamentary democracy proceeded most rapidly and extensively among those trends in the socialist parties of Europe and America that were most Marxist. The struggle that Bolshevism waged against the left deviations within its own party assumed particularly large proportions on two occasions. In 1908, on the question of whether or not to participate in a most reactionary parliament and in the legal worker societies, which were being restricted by most reactionary laws, and again in 1918 in the Treaty of 
Brest-Litovsk on the question of whether one compromise or another was permissible. In 1908, the left, sorry, in 1908, the left Bolsheviks were expelled from our party for stubbornly refusing to understand the necessity of participating in a most reactionary parliament. Hey, comrades, thank you for the class so far this evening. It's been very informative. Um, my question kind of um, had to do with the contemporary Chinese party. I've heard everything describing of Xi Jinping as a Marxist-Leninist to its Marxism-Leninism, socialism with Chinese characteristics to, um, and I guess with the current party having their 20th Congress concluded, um, what seems to be more the direction that the Chinese Communist Party is taking these days? Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to answer that if I can. Okay, this is the General Secretary speaking of the PCUSA. Uh, there's a change going on in China, again, in the party leadership. That's obvious. The circumstances have caused change. The last Congress, which our party greeted, the, 20, the last Congress of the Chinese party, uh, basically saw the situation where now the U.S. is seen as the main enemy in the world. And there's definitely going on an understanding that the economy in China has to be changed in some way, in a different direction. It's going to go in a direction away that they had before, which was basically using capitalist methods to fix socialist production. They're changing that again. Now, where they go with that is another question. But they are talking about it by bringing up Mao again, by bringing up Marxism again, there's definitely some kind of change going on there. Where it, where it goes, we find, well, we're going to have to find out. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Yes. So on the subject I would like to cover a little bit about Enver Hoxha earlier in the slideshow, there was also the additional theory that capitalism has been fully restored in the Soviet Union, which wasn't true, although essential planning was undone slightly, and that was reversed under the Brezhnev period. It is certainly important to realize that, especially during the time of, for example, Trotsky's. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, touch on the concept of uh, settler colonialism as uh, it's actually associated with critical theory as well. So I just wanted to quickly um, go over how it sort of rejects like class struggle and um, class analysis as well. So what it does is effectively like uh, pits non-indigenous peoples against indigenous peoples. And basically this is just a fundamental rejection of class struggle because basically what it does is it pits non-indigenous workers versus indigenous workers. And that's all I want to say, thanks. Thank you, comrade, and I would agree with that. And I believe that in November of 2021, we had a class on settlers. I don't know if it was ever posted anywhere, if we still have audio of that, uh, but I remember some really good discussion there uh, on that that piece and our critiques of it. Hello, comrade. Um, so I'm continuing what Angela was saying from having studied various 
individuals from China, specifically Xi Jinping. I read the first volume and various other essays from Xi Jinping and speeches from Xi Jinping, as well as various other uh, Chinese communists of the party. And uh, it appears to me from my research, just to keep this short, that they are going back to a more socialist-driven direction. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I surely hope so. I mean, I, I would like to see what's going to happen in the next years to come with uh, China, but I would actually have to disagree with the comrade there. I, I don't see that. Unfortunately, I, I do see a lot of alignments in the Chinese bourgeois and um, along with um, international capital kind of influencing China in the wrong direction. Um, and just to push on these kinds of things, um, we kind of see where that and this was brought up earlier where third worldism was brought up. Well, once again, when we think dialectically, when we were Marxist Leninists and we think about historical materialism, there is no third world. There's only it's capital versus labor. It is, it's a contradiction that we have to side on one side or the other. And uh, I think Gus Hall said it best when um, China decided to decide to side with America over the Soviet Union. Well, what does that do regardless of what their third worldism view is? Who does that actually um, help? And I guess we, we know what happened after history um, or what, what happened in history, which is unfortunately the Soviet Union had a counter revolution. Yeah, that's all. Well, you do know that the capitalists had said after the counter revolution that history had ended, um, which is BS, uh, but Thank you, comrade. Uh, we'll go ahead and take one more uh, hand and then we have to jump. Actually, I have something I would like to actually bring forward. But anyway, I would also like to discuss the topic of under left communism, the issue of especially revolution in today in America. Many people who like to declare revolution or only social, if you're PSL, only socialism so-and-so will remedy the situation. But a lot of the people have no actual plan or actual anchored view, far-sighted, thought-out <clears throat> way to actually bring that about. And a lot of people are too far-sighted by immediately forgetting that a lot of the people right now are not the masses in the USA are not revolutionary minded. Right now, people are focused on what are called immediate demands, and that is especially a better labor laws, uh, housing issues, inflation. And while there is truth to the issue of only focusing on what the white opportunists only focus on immediate demands or tailism, and forgoing revolution as the ultimate aim, we need to make sure that 90 we seconds. bring deal with those immediate aims. And eventually, as the class struggle goes on, the people will eventually grow into a revolutionary mindset. And that's all. The lefts, among whom there were many splendid revolutionaries who subsequently were and still are commendable members of the Communist Party, based themselves particularly on the successful experience of the 1905 boycott, when in August 1905, the Tsar proclaimed the convocation 
of a consultative parliament. The Bolshevik carved for its boycott and the teeth of all the opposition parties and the Mensheviks and the parliament was in fact swept away by the revolution of October 1905. The boycott proved correct at the time, not because non-participation and reactionary parliaments is correct in general, but because we accurately appraised the objective situation, which was leading to a rapid development of the mass strikes first into a political strike, then into a revolutionary strike, and finally into an uprising. Moreover, the struggle centered at that time on the question of whether the convocation of the first representative assembly should be left to the Tsar or an attempt should be made to wrest its convocation from the old regime. When there was not and could not be any certainty that the objective situation was of a similar kind, and when there was no certainty of a similar trend and the same rate of development, the boycott was no longer correct. The Bolsheviks' boycott of parliament in 1905 enriched the revolutionary proletariat with highly valuable political experience and showed that when legal and illegal parliamentary and non-parliamentary forms of struggle are combined, it is sometimes useful and even essential to reject parliamentary forms. It would, however, be highly erroneous to apply this experience blindly, imitatively, and uncritically to other conditions and other situations. The Bolsheviks' boycott of the Duma in 1906 was a mistake, right. although right. a minor and easily remediable one. The boycott of the Duma in 1907, 1908, and the subsequent years was a most serious error and difficult to remedy because on the one hand, a very rapid rise of the revolutionary tide and its conversion into an uprising was not to be expected. And on the other hand, the entire historical situation attendant upon the renovation of the bourgeois monarchy called for the legal and illegal activities being combined. Today, when we look back at this fully completed historical period, whose connection with subsequent periods has now become quite clear, it becomes most obvious that in 1908 to 14, the Bolsheviks could not have preserved, let alone strengthened and developed, the core of the revolutionary party of the proletariat had they not upheld in a most strenuous struggle the viewpoint that it was obligatory to combine legal and illegal forms of struggle and that it was obligatory to participate even in a most reactionary parliament and in a number of institutions hemmed in by reactionary laws, sick benefit society, societies, etc. In 1918, things did not reach a split. At that time, the left communists formed only a separate group or faction within our party, and that not for long. In the same year, 1918, the most prominent representatives of left communism, for example, comrades Radek and Bukharin, openly acknowledged their error. It had seemed to them that the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was a compromise with the imperialists, which was inexcusable on principle and harmful to the party of the revolutionary proletariat. It was indeed a compromise with the imperialists, but it was a compromise which under the circumstances had to be made. The conclusion is clear. 
to reject compromises on principle, to reject the permissibility of compromises in general, no matter what kind, is childishness, it is, which is difficult even to consider seriously. A political leader who desires to be useful to the revolutionary proletariat must be able to distinguish concrete cases of compromises that are inexcusable and are an expression of opportunism and treachery. He must direct all the force of criticism, the full intensity of merciless exposure and relentless war against these concrete compromises and not allow the past masters of practical socialism and parliamentary Jesuits to dodge and wriggle out of responsibility by means of disquisitions on compromises in general. It is in this way that the leaders of the British trade unions, as well as the Fabian Society and the Independent Labor Party, dodge responsibility for the treachery they have perpetrated, for having made a compromise that is really tantamount to the worst kind of opportunism, treachery and betrayal. There are different kinds of compromises. One must be able to analyze the situation and the concrete conditions of each compromise or of each variety of compromise. One must learn to distinguish between a man who has given up his money and firearms to bandits so as to lessen the evil they can do and to facilitate their capture and execution and a man who gives his money and firearms to the bandits so as to share in the loot. In politics, this is by no means always as elementary as it is in this childishly simple example. However, anyone who is out to think up for the workers some kind of recipe that will provide them with cut and dried solutions for all contingencies or promises that the policy of the revolutionary proletariat will never come up against difficult or complex situations is simply a charlatan. To leave no room for misinterpretation, I shall attempt to outline, if only very briefly, several fundamental rules for the analysis of concrete compromise. The party which entered into a compromise with the German imperialists by signing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been evolving its internationalism and practice ever since the end of 1914. It was not afraid to call for the defeat of Tsarist monarchy and to condemn defensive country and a war between two imperialist robbers. The parliamentary representatives of this party preferred exile in Siberia to taking a road leading to ministerial portfolios and a bourgeois government. The revolution that overthrew Tsarism and established a democratic republic put this party to a new and tremendous test. It did not enter into any agreements with its own imperialists, but prepared and brought about their overthrow. When it had assumed political power, this party did not leave a vestige of either landed or capitalist ownership. After making public and repudiating the imperialist secret treaties, this party proposed peace to all nations and yielded the violence of the Brest-Litovsk robbers only after the Anglo-French imperialists had torpedoed the conclusion of a peace and after Bolsheviks had done everything humanly possible to hasten the revolution in Germany and other countries. The absolute correctness of this compromise entered into by such a party in such a situation is becoming ever clearer and more obvious with every day. The Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries in Russia, like all leaders of the Second International throughout the world in 1914 to 1920, 
began with treachery by directly or indirectly justifying defense of country, i.e. the defense of their own predatory bourgeoisie. They continued their treachery by entering into a coalition with the bourgeoisie of their own country and fighting together with their own bourgeoisie against the revolutionary proletariat of their own country. Their bloc, first with Kerensky and the cadets, and then with Kolchak and Denikin in Russia, like the bloc Confreres ab abroad with the bourgeoisie of their respective countries, was in fact desertion to the side of the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. From beginning to end, their compromise with the bandits of imperialism meant their becoming accomplices in imperialist banditry. And with that, we'll go ahead and stop for our last round of discussion. And I have the question here, how and when do we compromise with the bourgeois today? Uh, how might we uh, do similar things to what the Bolsheviks did? I'd like to uh, answer that. Angelo D'Angelo would like to say something on that. Remember when this was written. This is written before the era of fascism. Don't forget that. Let's be careful and clear on this. This was done before the era of fascism. Everything changed in 1936 and 37. The International Communist Movement, the Comintern, at their seventh Congress, presented a different way of dealing with things. Now we had fascism on our hands. So now we had to look at the world, not the way we did in 1914. Now we have to look at it in a different way. There's fascism involved. Fascism will destroy us completely as workers. It will destroy our unions. It will destroy the civil liberties that the bourgeoisie gave us. It will destroy anything. Fascism is the enemy that has to be defeated first. And that is what's going on in the Ukraine right now. You don't hear the ultra left in the communist movement, the party in Mexico and the party in uh, Greece talk about fascism. You'll never hear that from them. Why? It exists. They burned down the trade union building in Odessa. They killed how many trade unionists? They outlawed the trade union movement recently. They outlawed the Communist Party in Kiev. There's fascism there. So ultra-left today is in the form of certain groups within the communist movement. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. So I, I like this section a lot. Um, and I like the idea that um, as, as communists, we have to uh, make um, intelligent and dialectical compromise. And um, I've been thinking about this uh, a bit. And this section to me highlights uh, exactly why I believe in my humble, humble opinion that China is unquestionably socialist um, since people have brought that up a lot this class. And I say that because we call ourselves communists because communism is our goal. But we all know that if we were in power tomorrow, the last thing we would want to do is immediately implement communism. Not because we're not, not communists, but because there's an order of operations to things. 
And in this order of operations, uh, we have to remember not only to analyze the economic side of things, but also to remember that one of the primary roles of the Vanguard Party is to protect the establishment of socialism. So just as Lenin compromised when he uh, sort of adopted the new economic policy, um, China doing something similar, I think it's acceptable to argue they could do that as a method of defending socialism in their country, given, yeah, given the, given the state of the world. That's, that's my thought. Thank you, comrade. Oh, it's a very good class. I'm glad that everybody stayed. Thank you.